Uh, I mean, actually a little bit south of Corning. And uh, I was at the Capay store, and uh, this older gentleman gave me this to read. And I, I took it home, and I wanted to share this with you. I shared it with my um, home fellowship, and it really spoke to me. So it's called God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. The remarks I'm making in this article are the results from the knowledge and insight of many people. Without the Lord bringing these people across my path through the course of my life, I would not have, I would not have near as much to say or to share. In these areas where I have misinterpreted, I am the one at fault. I am thankful for the many brethren who have had patience with me through the years. Especially, I give thanks to my wife, also my son, my four grandchildren, um, who have continued to encourage me. That being said, I present the following. Christ said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Our Lord had every conceivable right to be angry with mankind. Yet he came not to condemn or to hold our sins against us. As he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God has forgiven us, for Christ was smitten for our sake. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Since Christ paid the ultimate price for our sin through his death and became because of his perfect life, the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I will please. Christ has provided all that is necessary for which I will, re in, will result in a new heart. He will give us the proper desires of our heart. With a, with a changed heart, we will then go by God's direction and share the message of love and forgiveness. It is the Holy Spirit who will convince men of their sins. That is not for us to do. God uses the gospel of the good news to convict men of their sins. Christ tells us, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. As believers, we are the sent ones. We need to be aware of the purpose for which we are sent, and then go proclaiming the gospel as the sent ones. It is not a proud or conceited thing to tell another individual that we've been sent of God with such good news that it could forever change their life. It is for us to share the message. It is God's work to convince them of the truth that will make them acceptable in the Father's sight. We are to present the invitation to be reconciled to God. In doing so, we are about the Father's business, just as Christ was about his Father's business. Let us never forget that we are the sent ones. God was angry with sin. Men by their hands lifted up Christ on the cross. Christ said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself, and I will raise it up again. By their hands, they nailed him to the cross. With their hands, they placed a crown of thorns on his head. With their hands, struck him. Men used their hands to thrust the spear in his side, and their hands smote and bruised Christ. With their hands, they placed a cross on his back and made him carry it up in pain from the beating they gave him with their hands as he walked up the hill of Golgotha. They had no hands of compassion. How amazing that Christ said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God was in the hands of angry sinners. He gave up his spirit and died. As the Father had promised, he raised, from him the, he raised him from the dead, and he ascended to the Father. We're almost done. Christ began his ministry at 30 and completed it when he was about 33 when he said, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Christ died at the age of uh, at the early age, and yet told man his days would be three score ten, which is seventy years. And if by more, for reason by strength, Christ would never have died of old age, because he 
oh, in his days, uh, because he was a perfect man. God has given me the strength to live beyond three score and ten. I have this guy who gave me the letter is now 83 years old, and I know my life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. God has given me the Holy Spirit, whereby I know I have eternal life. Until this body goes back to dust, I desire to give him and live to give him glory. With the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are continually aware of his presence. We wake up each morning and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. God does not speak audibly to anyone today, but he has made it quite clear which is the right way and that we should walk in it. If any man says he abides in him, he should so walk even as he walked. So let us pray for one another and often remind each other of our love as we seek in his way to be pleasing to him. This was from Phil Johnson. This guy was 83 years old. He's every day at the Capay store. He walks there um, with his own two feet at 83 years old. This guy has a, a spark of life in his eye that I wish, I, I pray I have at 60. Okay? So... What freaked me out about this was that two weeks later, Brian says up here, we should make a testimony and give it to people. That was, that was of God. And so I was kind of shooken and I, and I shared it with my home fellowship. And here I stand wanting to do such a good thing, being single, and yet I'm guilty because I'm yet to type out my my, my, my testimony. And what's awesome about this is this man, it, 83 years old, gave the gospel in his own words what God did. And, you know, we each and every one of us can do that. Not all of us can get up in front of people maybe and talk. Not all of us can get in front of somebody who's a stranger and give the gospel and proclaim that awesome good news, right? And so, but what we can do, if we're really aware, of, there's a dying world out there. There's people that believe in evolution that thinks that's the truth. I just talked to a young man the other day who doesn't think there's God. Evolution is what taught in school. So I, I want to encourage you guys, if, if take your time, write your testimony, put the gospel in it. Guys, hand it to, when God, the Holy Spirit, tells you to give it to somebody, you're never going to see them again. You could, while you're up visiting and reading in that crowded store at Costco, and you see something going on, say, hey, brother, the Lord told me to, uh, I was told to give this to you. And if that's the Holy Spirit, you're not lying. And let God take over from there. I mean, how awesome is that? So I want to encourage you guys, if you haven't, do it. I'm guilty too. I'm yet to do it. So I want to stir you guys up. Please, guys, there's a perishing world out there, okay? And it's getting late, and it's, it, we need to get serious. Not saying you're not serious, but I, I'm, I'm guilty. So I hope that encourages you guys. So thank you for your timing. God bless you. Bible says to stir up one another to love and good works, and so good, good job, Bill. Well, tonight we are in Colossians chapter one, picking up in verse six. Last time we were in verses three through five, and let's read that again, where it says, "We give thanks to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus." your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before the word of truth, the gospel. And we see this here where he said, we've heard of your faith in Christ, your love for all the saints, your hope that's laid up for you in heaven. And those three things are the beautiful flowers of the characteristics of the nature 
of a born-again believer. The Bible says that Jesus gives us that first seed of faith. And uh, he causes us to believe the truth about ourselves and about him, that we are sinners. He is holy, that he made us, and we need to walk in the image in which he created us, but we can't. And so by faith, we receive the work of Jesus Christ in our place. And then we have this love that God's Holy Spirit fills us up. I think first is that the step of love. It says not that we love, but that we first receive God's love. And this is love, that we understand his love for us. We talked about that a little bit last week, where when you understand God's love, you understand his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And um, I had mentioned where people say, what, what are you going to be doing next, Brian, after you leave Red Bluff? And it's just like, I don't know. I wake up every day feeling like God loves me more than anybody on this planet. And that if I live another day or another hundred years, that every day God's, God has a divine plan. And his thoughts towards me are good and not evil to give me a hope and a, and a future. And knowing this love and this grace and this kindness, your hearts respond to just say, Lord, I, I want to love you. And I want to love everybody the way you're loving me. And, uh, and then that gives us that hope that whatever we're losing out on this planet, it's okay. We're gonna be in heaven for all of eternity. No pain, no sorrow, no suffering. So if you're standing at a bus stop and I say, hey, I am actually a multi-billionaire and for one second, I'm gonna give you a billion dollars. And there, I give you a billion dollars for a second, and it's over. Isn't that our life? <laughs> Isn't it just a vapor? So even if God gave us everything this world had to offer, it's but for a second. But yet we're going to have eternity, and at his right hand, we're going to have pleasure forevermore in Christ, that holy, righteous pleasure in heaven. And so we have that certainty that, you know, the outward man is perishing. Who cares? The Lord, uh, either I'm going to go see him or he's going to come and grab me in the rapture. But either way, our life is just a fleeting vapor. And uh, our hope is not on this earth. Our hope is in heaven. And so faith, hope, and love, these three. Now in verse 6, he says tonight, which has come to you as it has also come in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. It can go to any place on the planet, any culture, any language, and it, it doesn't have all these religious things. You know, it, it's not like we got to bring in a truckload of, of paraphernalia, <laughs> you know, crosses and images and a bunch of necklaces. And, you know, I, it's interesting when you think about many of the religions of the world. You can't go into the jungle of New Guinea 
unless you have a crate load of things to worship that God. But in Christ, it is a relationship with you and him. And that's it. It's you receiving his love and the work he did on the cross and now living, if it's in the jungles of New Guinea or if it's in the streets of Manhattan, New York, wherever it is, you're gonna take that relationship with Christ and be in the world the way you were in the world, but now you're not of it. And the sinfulness of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And so Paul's rejoicing going, I, I know, just like in all the world, it looks different when it lands amongst the wealthy of Rome. It looks different when it reaches the African plains. But that very day you heard and you knew the grace of God and truth or the truth, the rich truth of God's grace the moment you got the grace, you see some people coming to Christ in, in unique ways. You know, I, I have to admit that uh, back in the days when we had all those movies about the, the end times and remember all those different ones and, and I'd have some of my friends from high school and, and they're just running forward to get saved because they're so scared of the Antichrist, you know, and they don't want to get left behind. Um, I can remember a lot of funny stories, you know. Uh, one, one friend of mine, he, he called up one day, and I'm like, yeah, hey, what's happening? He's like, okay, is anybody else in your family missing? And I'm like, what? His dad had been in the garage, had his radio playing, was working, but decided to go down to a neighbor's house, so shut the garage, left the radio on. His mom had forgotten, left the stove on, and went to the grocery store, and he comes in from school and he's like, I got left behind. He was so convicted. And so he was calling me up going, well, you're here, but is there anybody else there uh, besides you too, Brian? It's like, no, it, you know. And so it, it's like, okay, that's, you know, the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. You know, that's okay. We, that's, that's a place to start where God's spirit is gripping you. But fruit is really not going to come until we are pickled and soaking in the grace of God. When we understand the complete truth of God's grace, that he has us, we are saved by his grace, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. That Jesus has us in his hand, and he's greater than all. And even the Father has us in his hand. And there's no one greater than Father. Of course, Christ and the Father are one. And, and so he just overwhelms us with this grace. And then the moment that grace hits and you start walking in grace, you begin to bear fruit. You know, back in the Jesus days, it, it was fun because God's spirit was just moving, really bringing a whole generation, the gospel to all the hippies and, and those but I, I can just remember, you'd, you would share the Lord with one guy, he would get born again, and before church that night, he went and got five of his friends, and they all got saved that night. And then they go get five of their friends, and those, all those guys get saved the next night. And then we go down to the Denny's, trying to eat, and he goes, hey, can you talk to my other two friends? And we share the Lord with them, and they get saved. And it was just, it was just fruit right from the beginning.
And there is such a joy in salvation. And he says here that I, I see this happening in you as, or I hear about it happening in you from Epaphras, that this gospel of grace, you know it. You can't, you know, Chuck used to always say, you have to have the measles to give measles. And uh, when you have the grace of God save you, um, there's no sweeter message, there's no sweeter truth than that grace of God. And he says, you bear fruit. Notice he doesn't say, and now you're a part of a factory that kicks out widgets, Christian widgets. <laughs> We're not a big factory with engines moving and pipes hissing from steam and smoke billowing out and things being pressured by heat. And no, we are the vineyard. <laughs> We're out in the country. I lived, uh, used to live in a place called Carruthers in every direction you could see. I'd go climb up on the top of the church. As far as the eye could see were vineyards. And it just, it was just so quiet, so peaceful. And uh, there just wasn't any hustle or bustle. And uh, you know, when you prune those grapevines, they look like they're gonna die, like you kill them. And you tie them up in faith and then the branches start growing and the leaves start coming out and, and sure enough, the grapes are there. And so we are that fruit on a vineyard. We just simply abide and we bear good fruit. <laughs> That's it. There's no stress. There's no strain. We just receive the love of God and we're in human flesh. So the things we don't want to do, we do. The things we do want to do, we don't do. We struggle every day, and, and we're, as we struggle to follow the Lord and hate what he hates to the degree he hates it and love what he loves to the degree he loves it and give our life as a living sacrifice, we, we discover that we begin to bear fruit in, in bigger ways than we had anticipated. Jesus says, when the word goes out and falls amongst the good soil, some bear 30-fold, some 60-fold, some a hundredfold. In Luke 8.15, I like the way it says it there in that passage, Gospel of Luke 8.15. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with, I like this, a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience or through endurance. Jesus made this point abundantly clear that the pressure was not on us. From the moment they understood the full truth of the grace of God, and, and it impacted them in Colossae in a unique and special way, but they had the same spirit of faith that Paul had and Peter had and all Christians throughout the world. They have that same exact spirit of God living in and they're walking out of that goodness of God. Jesus said it plainly in John 15, one, I am the true vine, my father is the drying vine dresser. So you've got a vine there rooted down to the earth and all these branches coming out from it. And then you have the father with the pruning shears in his hands. 
He says in John 15, 2, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If you abide, verse seven and eight, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. And so you don't walk out into those vineyards and hear those vines going, man, I've got to produce, ah, groaning, ah, you know. What do those branches do? (laughs) They just hang out in the vine, right? It's, It's not this stressful, straining, striving thing. And the more they abide, the more sap comes from the stock and, and they feed and they get pruned and the next year they can bear more and more food. And he says there, once that grace came and got you, the fruit started bearing and you got it. You're now living in it. God loves me. What's that mean? That is grace and mercy and kindness. He's never gonna leave me nor forsake me. He who began that good work is going to complete it. But Lord, what if I sin seven times a day, even if it's seven times 70? I expect you to forgive the same way. You know, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Neither powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. We are more than conquerors because of his love. Romans, it says, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so he goes on in Romans 5 to say, okay, let's get this right. When God loved you, you were a sinner. If you had been there, you would have been screaming, crucify him, crucify him. If you had been there, you would have been mocking him. Hey, you healed others, heal yourself. We were in total darkness, but yet Christ bore the sins of that Roman soldier that just nailed him there, the thief next to him who was mocking him a few minutes ago, all those Pharisees that were saying horrible things about him. He bore all their sins, why they hated his guts, why they crucified him. Now, if you believe that, this is the gospel. We were sinners when God started loving you. You were in darkness, you were boasting. You know, I, I remember in high school and, and uh, I was following the Lord, the guys would come in and they would boast about how they violated some girl, got her drunk Friday night and, and had sex. And I'm, I'm just, they were just like comparing stories and just rejoicing. And I can remember as a Christian just Oh, Lord, how may be a light in this dark place. But, but yet they were celebrating their wickedness as a trophy, as something heroic they did. So if God loved us when we were like that, now we've become Christians. 
and we're stumbling and falling and making mistakes and sinning and having fleshly times and weak times and angry times and bitterness. And we're wrestling through all the pilgrimage of this life and all the difficulties that come our way. What is it saying in Romans 5? That if he loved you while you were a sinner, then he loved you when you were one years on the Lord, Lord, needing your diaper changed and peeing and pooping all over the place and spitting up. And then he loved you when you were two and, and you're falling down and got the terrible twos ripping and tearing everything up. He still loved you. And then he loved you when you were three and five and you became a teenager. He loved you a little less, but he loved you. <laughs> you know, so the point, the, the, the analogy he gives is like, look, if he loved you when you mocked him, hated him, you, you had no desire to walk righteously. The idea of going to a prayer meeting, it's for old ladies and little children, going to church, that's a bunch of idiots for me. But now we're trying to please him. Fellas, we do. He's pointing out, if he loved us while we were at the worst we're ever gonna be before we came to him as sinners, how, how is it possible that now he could stop loving us? If God is for us, right? And this is understanding the love of God that he is for us, that he'll never be against us, that he, God gave his son and there's just nothing more he could give in, in a greater proportion. And if he didn't hold back his only begotten son, then he's not gonna hold back anything now whatsoever. So by his grace, Paul mentions in verse seven about Epaphras, the guy who was pastoring the churches in those areas, he calls him a dear fellow servant, faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he's gonna mention him some more. And in verse eight, he said, he was also declared your love, notice how, in the spirit. Not, not just a love that a man can come to without God in his life. We are born in his nature, so we have love. You know, Hitler probably loved his wife that he married her two minutes before they, he committed suicide. But I'm sure that he had a love for his mom and his brothers. People were made in God's image we can love, but there is another love that passes human comprehension when God spills our spirit up and when you have this love for God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then you wanna love people as God's loved you do unto others you have them do unto you. There's just something that happens. And I, you know, I've been all around the world and I'll be talking to some African guy. I, I have no idea his language, his culture is very different. But when we start worshiping God, it's like, wow, we're the same spirit. When through a translator, he's sharing what he learned from the word. It's like, man, we're of the same spirit. You're sitting across the table, eating with these guys, and you can just sense these guys all love Jesus the way I love Jesus. And we're gonna all be together for eternity in heaven. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And if that love doesn't happen, then you haven't yet received the truth of God's grace. In Romans 13, or excuse me, the Gospel of John 13, 35. 
by this all will know that you are my disciples. If you know the word, if you speak in tongues, if you have power to raise the dead, what does he say there? If you have love one for another. In 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Christ agape love. Paul nailed it to the Corinthians. They were all into the spiritual gifts and power and speaking in tongues and prophesying. And they were so proud of themselves for walking in the supernatural. And I think they were. But yet Paul came back and said, I don't hear of the same love of the spirit there. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, a well-known passage, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understood all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. Interesting, that's the first definition of love. It's not, you get this romantic, ooey-gooey feeling, sort of like the, the, you know, snowing on Christmas Eve. That's not what he says. It's first of all, when God grabs you, you just, there's nothing human, human failure, human sin, human struggle in anybody's life that, that you don't have compassion on them and have mercy on them and have kindness towards them and grace towards them. That's, that's the love of Christ. It's not when you're loving lovely people. It's when you're challenged with their fleshly, sinful selfishness and your heart's just like, Lord, love them. Lord, I just pray for them, bless them. I wanna see great things through them. Help them, Lord. Love, it says there is long suffering there. Um, love suffers long and is, I like this, the next part, is what? Kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, it's not puffed up. It's, it's a very humble thing. It's not trying to get attention, it's trying to just humbly, in, in, a, in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself, just love people, be kind to people. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. So this is what Paul is saying. I hear you're loving the spirit. I hear there's some really challenging people in the church there. I hear there's some really angry, evil people that are worshiping false gods that hate you and spit on you. Yet I hear that you're just like Jesus. Being cursed, you don't curse back. Being reviled, you revile, you don't revile back, but just commit it to the Father and, and just pray for them and do good to them and bless them. Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things. That is what I hear is going on in Colossae. And you know what? Everywhere 
the grace of God and truth hits, that's what we see. Right the moment that grace hits, fruitfulness in the believer's life, even though he's a couple minutes in the Lord, he's already shining a light. He's already being the salt of the earth. He's already proclaiming, I was blind and now I see. That's all I know. <laughs> I was a sinner and I asked Jesus to forgive me and I, the burden's gone. I believe that, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Well, what else you know? Nothing. That's all I know. But you know what? It's often sufficient. And then you see this fruit of what? Knowledge. Now that can puff up. Spiritual gifts. If I had the power to move mountains, but yet, no. What, what is it? It's that grace of God. You understand his love for you. And you want everybody in the world to know his love for you. And them. <laughs> and, and just uh, to, to, to have that joy of just, man, I want Jesus to dump on you like he dumped on me. Now Paul prays for these believers that are doing well. You know, we often think um, we need to pray for somebody because they're doing bad. We hear they're sick or they need a new car or, you know, marriage is falling apart. So we need to pray for them. But Paul, and you look at his prayers in Colossians and Ephesians and so forth, it's actually churches that are doing well. But he knows how to pray for them to even do better. In verse 9 through 14, if you want to know how to pray for somebody, you know, the Bible says when we pray according to his will, he hears us. So here's a prayer by the Holy Spirit given to Paul for us. That's perfectly in God's will. So you can know 100% of this will be answered. So if you want to know how to pray for a friend, here you go. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. Let's all read it out loud together. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. So there in verse 9, for this reason, because it's a genuine Christianity, because I hear about the grace and the love, and I hear the faith, hope, and love. I, I, I hear the characteristics of a born-again believer. And, and therefore, now I pray for this reason. And notice he says, I don't cease to pray for you. You know the thing you'll find about Paul in all his letters? He was a praying guy. <laughs> and you know, everybody with him, they were amazing praying people. Paul says, I pray without ceasing. He's going to turn around and tell us about Epaphras praying without ceasing. It's interesting that the apostles, they saw Jesus raise the dead and do miracles and have incredible insight into the word. But the apostles never came and said, Jesus, teach us how to raise the dead. Teach us how to do miracles. Teach us how to break bread for the thousands. Teach us how to have those killer Bible studies that you have. They only asked him one question, and they actually asked it twice. 
In Matthew, we see it's at the very beginning of the ministry. Lord, teach us to pray. And then in the Gospel of Luke, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, they ask again, Lord, teach us to pray. And what did Jesus say? I'll teach you. Here's the first thing. It's persistence. It's like a guy who has a friend drop in out of, out of town at nighttime and he has nothing to feed him. So he goes to his best friend and bangs on his door. Give me some bread so I can feed my uh, friend of mine who dropped in on me out of town. He says, go away. I've already in bed and all the animals are down. And he's like knocking on the door. I need you to get out of bed. And the chickens are starting to flutter and the pigs are starting to stir. Or, I guess not pigs, they're Jewish. But uh, the sheep are starting to stir. And, uh, and anyway, he says, not because you're my best friend, but because you're pestering me and I want you to go away. Here's bread. Oh, that's too much. Even have another loaf. Get out of here. And Jesus says, do you get it? Ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking. And Jesus told other stories. They all came down to those who prayed without ceasing, those who were persistent in their prayers. And here we see that Paul also, if you had five minutes with Paul, you would have been wise to say, teach me to prayer. Teach me to pray. Because they knew if they could get Jesus' prayer life, they would have his power. If they could get Jesus' prayer life, they would have those killer Bible studies. If they could get Jesus' understanding of his connection with the Father through prayer, that was the door that all these other things would come through. So Paul says, hearing about your fruitfulness, my reaction to that was to just pray harder for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I want you to know Jesus deeper and better. I want you to understand God's will for your life to its fullness. I want you to have all that the Lord has for you. I, I don't know about you, but I, I know I'm a child of Abraham, right? We are all been grafted in as a wild, wild olive branch. We're now a part of the Jewish lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and us. And so the promise was to Abraham that God would bless him. And then through blessing Abraham, it says in Genesis 12, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So when I start asking God for different things, I usually just ends by saying, Lord, bless me. Not that I get blessed, but bless me that I can be a blessing and fully bless me that I can be a full blessing. Lord, I, I want your love just blessing me so I can have, be a better lover of people. Your joy, Lord, bless me with greater joy so the joy of the Lord would be in my life and the people would see the fruit of that joy and that peace and that patience and that kindness and that goodness. And I'm getting a little convicted as my wife's here and, and she knows those things aren't abounding that well in my life right now. But uh, 
we can we can preach better than we can live, right? Um, just in case, in case you were wondering, going, man, Brian's got to be the best Christian in at least uh, all of California, which isn't much anymore. Uh, they all, most of the good Christians moved to Texas already, right? Uh, or Idaho or somewhere. But there's this handful of uh, people left. And uh, anyway, it says to be filled. That word to be filled, plero in the Greek, is to be completely filled totally under the control, that we are just dominated with the knowledge of Jesus' will in our life. This is what his prayer was for them. And of course, the first place we learn of God's will is the word, right? Blessed is the man who meditates day and night. That guy is going to prosper in all that he does. He says in Psalms 1 verse 3, now, I would say as a pastor, nine out of 10 times, somebody wants to counsel with me if they wanna know God's will in a particular area. And so you try to help, you know, hear their story and say, okay, um, what is the Lord speaking? Because either choice is a good choice or one choice if you humanly weigh it out, one choice is a little better than the other, or maybe the choice is a lot better if, if that's God's will. And, and the downside's even worse. I think that we should use our mind in those kind of ways. But typically, I'm asking about their walk with the Lord. What did the Lord speak to you through the word this week? Well, you know, I've been really busy. Now. Okay, last week. Well, I was busy last well, two week too. Two months ago, I was really busy two months ago. Okay. Well, have you been praying about this? Oh, how did I forget praying about it? No, I haven't. You know, where are you in your walk with the Lord? Because here's, the, here's the, 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 the point. People often foolishly want to know God's will without being in his will. And somehow they think that if I know his will, I will be in his will. And you know what? You could be at the perfect place, at the perfect job, living in the perfect house, in the perfect relationship, but if you're not in God's will, God's will isn't your will either, his will either. Do you understand? You gotta first be in his will. And if you're in his will, now you can grow in the knowledge of him to know what is his will. And the Bible tells us we should just always be praying that. Father, as, as I'm seeking you, your kingdom, and your righteousness, and Lord, as I just surrender my body to you today, Lord, I want your will. Right? Jesus taught us to pray that way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not partially. On earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, all things are perfectly holy, all things are perfectly glorifying God. That, you know, one day when we're with the Lord, we'll know all things, even as we are known. But knowing God's will can never replace living a life of God's will. And this is what he is saying, that you'll be filled up, conquered over, just controlled by this incredible knowledge of God. And as you're living in this knowledge of God, you're living in this life of his perfect will. 
And then you say, what, what is it, Lord? Then, then it makes sense that he can reveal that to you. But so often, it's right in the word. Years back, it got so crazy where people would come in and ask for counseling, and it was I, everything I'm saying to them was in the Sunday sermon or in the Wednesday night sermon. And it got so nuts that I finally just had to say, I won't counsel with you unless you heard the sermon from Wednesday or Sunday. And then I would start getting calls. People would say, hey, I don't need to meet with you after all. Man, God spoke to me out of the sermon Sunday. And that was exactly what I needed to hear. And, uh, and so again, I think a lot of times people are trying to use counseling appointments in place of hearing God's word or reading God's word. And so, hey, I need to take an hour or two of your time because I don't want to take the time to read the Bible and pray and go to church and fellowship with Christians, but I'm just going to utilize your time, Pastor, in lieu of that. So I'm going to take all your spirituality and, and give me advice and wisdom and fill me up. And, of course, I'm willing to do that. I, I'm not upset about that. It's just I end up preaching my sermon in the counseling appointment that I had Sunday, and then they're going, man, that's, that's powerful. Man, that's exactly what the Lord had me to to speak, man, what, did God prepare you for this, Brian, or something? And I'm like, no, I just preached Sunday sermon to you. You're, you're kidding, you know, and then they go back and listen to it. And so we need just to continue that life in God's word, all his scripture, God breathed to train us and to correct us and to instruct us and to make us complete in every good work. It tells us in 2 Timothy 3, and then in Ephesians 4, 13 to 14, it says we need to keep teaching the word, pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists, we need to keep teaching this truth and love until what? Here's where we want the knowledge of Jesus Christ to be. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, complete, matured man not one or two of us, but together. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? One's a hand, one's a foot, one's an ear, but together we make up the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried by, about by every wind of doctrine. So we quit being immature in the knowledge of him, but we're full in the knowledge of him. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says something rather biting. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. And boy, he would lay into those Corinthians about being carnal and divisive and that they're too big of babies for him to speak the true meat of the word into their life. He had to give them uh, milk instead. And then he, he says again, knowing God's will in all thankfulness. And um, in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. He says it again, so that having this fullness of Christ and the fullness of his will, you're now walking in this manner worthy 
of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice it's not something that happens once. It's something that's happening and it keeps on growing. It's increasing more and more. I'm in the will of God more. I'm, I'm full of his love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. You know, at first, we, we, we're walking in the flesh. We're trying to walk in the spirit. We just don't know enough. We're babes. And every once in a while, we surprise ourselves with kindness. You guys like, get out of the way. And you're, you get out. You know, I'm sorry, sir. Jesus loves you. Let me get out. And you're like, I've got to call up somebody here. I had kindness today. I'm as shocked as you are. And then, you know, it happens a couple of times in one day. And then it, all of a sudden, now it's the odd thing when you're not. And you're grieved about it. Now, so that, that love and joy and peace, that's my, that's my mainstay. That's the way I typically always am, full of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. And, and then every once in a while, whoosh, this thing will pop up, and it's like, oh, I'm still in the flesh. Lord, help me. Come quickly, Lord. I hate this old sinful flesh. But this is what he's trying to say to them, that this would just increase, increase, until in him you're living and moving and having your being, and you're walking in this manner that's worthy of him, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work. In other words, you didn't half share the Lord with that guy, or you didn't somewhat represent Christ. But every opportunity, the maximum amount of power and wisdom and knowledge and love are there. Uh, and it's, a, it's an incredible thing when you're fully used of the Lord in every possible way. And then he goes on in verse 12 or 11 Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. And so now I pray that that strength comes with all the Greek word there, might. What do you think it is? Dunamis, dynamite, dynamic. There's this dynamic in your life, God strengthening you. And then you have tapped in to his glorious power. Once again, so it's by the strength of his dunamis, according to his glorious dunamis, full or for all patience and long suffering with joy. Interesting, again, he doesn't say, strengthen with all might to move mountains, have his glorious power to raise the dead. He's saying that you might have God's strength and this great might, you might have his glorious power so you can be patient. <laughs> and long-suffering, endure with joy. So you think, man, a great miracle would be the dead raising. No, in God's mind, a great miracle is you go through trials and you're joyful. You're giving thanks to the Father. You're in all things, rejoice in the Lord. In everything, you're giving thanks. He says that is what God is looking for with his might, it's not to raise the dead or break bread for 5,000 people. It's to have a continuous joy in your life, no matter how difficult the situation. And then he adds in that, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. 
who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Have you just stopped every once in a while just to say, thank you, Father, that God our Father so loved the world, the worst of us, the chiefest of all sinners, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That every person who's ever been on this planet, the father gave his son, not grudgingly, but lovingly. And then his son says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, as blood and sweat begin to drop to the ground, but not my will, your will be done. But Lord, he prays three times, Father. And his father has to be quiet. He doesn't answer him. It's a rhetorical no, there is no other way. But how great the father's love for us, that he gave his son, why? So we could be qualified to be partakers of Jesus' inheritance. Romans 8 will tell you about that. And not just for us, but all the saints in his light. God is light. And so the Father so loved us. And what did he picture? He pictured us being in heaven, inheriting exactly what his son Jesus inherits, being righteous as his son is righteous perfect in holiness, and that all that Jesus possesses, it says in Romans 8, we get that same full inheritance, the same streets of gold, the same heaven, the same great uh, mansion in heaven, if you would, and how we need to come to that place in everything, give thanks, because this is the will of God, because there's nothing else that matters. Everything overshadows that. Man, I got this car that doesn't work. God, the creator of all things, the father of all creation, sent his only begotten son for you to die in your place. Pay for all your sins. Not so you can just live 70 years on planet and die and then just become fertilizer for the grass to go green. But he did that so you could have eternal life with him and perfect righteousness. Isn't that just hard to imagine? We're so sinful. We're so greedy. We're so lustful. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our hearts are desperately, deceitfully wicked. Above all things, you can know it. But the Father did not want us to stay in that place. So he gave his only begotten son, and Jesus, with the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so, it doesn't matter what's going on. The Father loves us. The Father's given us his only begotten Son. No treasure does he have greater than that. Jesus a man acquainted with grief and sorrow was smitten and stricken. It looked as if God hated him. That's what it means in Isaiah 53. He was smitten of God and afflicted. Everybody in Nazareth thought, man, I don't know what that Jesus guy did, but God's after him. Make his life miserable. Of course, we know what he was doing. 
He was being tempted with every possible sin so he could be our great high priest who sympathizes with us in all our weaknesses, although he never sinned. He knows what it's like to be in a, in a struggling, sinful state of humanity, and he can be our great comforter. So verse 12 again, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of an inheritance in the saints and light. And just to read these last couple of verses, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's past tense. We are delivered past tense from the power of darkness. You know, we often talk about being born again, but understand this too. We have been taken out of darkness. No weapons formed against us shall ever prosper again. We are delivered. Greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. Isn't it awesome? That the moment we said, Jesus be the Lord of my life, that King Satan, that God Satan, that Prince of the power of the air is dethroned from our life. And then we are conveyed into what? The kingdom of the son of his love. Another way of saying that is God's dear son. The word conveyed it is actually an ancient word. When you had one empire ruling and now they lost and another empire's coming in and they take all the pictures down, they throw all the statues down, they do everything they can to erase the memory of that previous kingdom. And so he is saying here that this satanic kingdom, all the idols come down. We're gonna rip up the floor and redo it. We're gonna change the shape of the doors. We're gonna make this place look like it had never been inhabited by the kingdom before us. And now we have a king and we are in a kingdom. What's its name? It's that everybody who lives in it is loved by the Father and has been given unto the Son of his love to rule and reign over him, Prince Jesus. And so it's glorious. Well, I'm born again. I don't, all my sins are forgiven. Not only that, right? I mean, we keep doing that. Not only that, but Satan's been cut off from your life. Not only that, you are equal in righteousness to Jesus. Not only that, we are gonna rule and reign with Christ. Not only that, he's made us kings and priests unto him. We're gonna be a king and a priest unto God. Yes, forever and ever. Not only that, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And only righteousness dwells there. And you say, well, that counts me out. No, you are going to be perfect in righteousness. You have every reason to be there. Well, how could such a thing happen for me? This is where we should all be stopped in this moment. Verse 14. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Such a simple sentence, isn't it? But boy, what a powerful verse Colossians 1.14 is. Whom we have redemption. We've been bought out of slavery. How? Through his blood. It was a bloody business when they beat Jesus. 
It was a bloody business when they put that crown upon his head. It was a bloody business when he put those nails to his hands and his feet. It was a bloody business as he pulled his back up and back upon that cross trying to grasp air. I don't think there was too much blood left the time they took him and, and buried him in the tomb. But God so loved the world, he gave his son to come and to bleed and to torture and to take all our sins upon him and pay for them. He paid for that. We're not going to go to heaven and go, you know, oh yeah, my, I, I, I sinned and, and my sins were all wiped out. Not the case. Your sins brought death. Your sins, you should have heard as Jesus said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Those, those words were for you of rejection. The darkness fell and the earth shook of judgment of God upon all our sins. That darkness should have been ours. That sense of God's judgment on sin should have been ours. The torture shouldn't have lasted a few hours, but all of eternity. But through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. I want to end with these two verses, Psalms 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, let's read it together. So far as he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. And let's read it together. He will cast away our sins into the depths of the sea. Isn't that pretty amazing? Oh, what love the Father has for us. Oh, the beloved, the, the kingdom of his beloved son we now abide in. We have been delivered. We are being delivered. And we have eternal life, not because you're going to be really good this next year or 10 years. It's because we could not attain to even one morsel of righteousness. The best our righteousness we'd conjure up is a dirty rag. That's the best we could do. But as a gift, he gives us huge, perfect righteousness. Amazing, isn't it? Well, Lord, we know now how to pray for a friend. <laughs> we thank you, Lord, for these amazing prayers by your Holy Spirit given to the hand of the wonderful Apostle Paul. Can't wait to meet him. But yet we, we learn that, wow, we, we got a long ways to go on how to pray because I wouldn't have thought of any of these things up. Lord, help us to pray in a deeper, more mature way. Help us by the Holy Spirit to to pray in the perfect will of God. And if not, let your spirit come upon us, overwhelm us, and groan with words too deep for our understanding to grasp, but yet perfect prayers by the Holy Spirit you would answer for us and for others. All we can say is, Lord, you're so good. You're so amazing. We just yield our lives to you in a fresh way tonight like never before. <coughs> In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. God bless you all. Some of you are asking how much longer Cheryl and I will be here. Um, 17th, so I got two more Wednesday nights, I believe. And, uh, and we'll be around on the Sundays as well. That's it. God bless.